Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. In his book, Profiles in Courage, John F. Kennedy writes that courage exists when a man does what he must, in spite of personal consequences, in spite of obstacles and dangers and pressures, and that is the basis of all human morality. It's hard to even think about this realm in public life in 2018. A time when courage is in short supply, reality is subjective, and facts are not the stubborn things that John Adams said they were but merely fungible talking points to gin up the base. It's sad in a way that we have to rely almost solely on history to find examples of the courage and morality that Kennedy was talking about. But that's where multiple Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Tom Ricks takes us in his joint biography of Churchill and Orwell. Tom Ricks writes the Long March column for Task and Purpose and is the military history columnist for the New York Times Book Review, He was a former contributing editor of Foreign Policy magazine, for which he wrote the prize-winning blog, The Best Defense. He's the author of numerous books, including The Generals, The Gamble, and Fiasco. And it is my pleasure to welcome Thomas Ricks back to this program to talk about his newest work, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. It's just out in paperback from Penguin. Tom Ricks, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's great to have you here. Churchill and Orwell never met, and and while it's clear that certainly Orwell admired Churchill, it's a little less clear what Churchill thought of Orwell. Given all that, why these two, why this joint biography? You're right. I mean, they never met. Um, They're wildly different people. Churchill is uh, conservative, fat, imperialist, gourmand, alcoholic, (laughs) loudmouth, public figure for decades. Uh, Orwell is, in his own time, most of his life, a failure, a minor, failed novelist, tubercular, skinny, chain-smoking. They're just very different people politically. Uh, Orwell is a leftist, a socialist, but anti-communist. They just approach life so differently. That said, when it came down to what the key question of the 20th century was, they agreed on it. And they agreed on the answer. Some people thought the key question was uh, what Sigmund Freud thought, the workings of the unconscious. Other people thought it was Karl Marx. Who owns the means of production? And they said, no, the key question is what is the relationship of the individual to the state? How do you preserve individual freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly in a time of an increasingly intrusive government of surveillance, public and private. How do you deal with this? And from their very different ideological perspectives, they came up with some very clear answers, which in a nutshell are, number one, have principles. Number two, be able to figure out the facts through observation. Number three, apply your principles to those facts to develop a course of action. And finally, footnote, when you do that, don't expect people to like you. The striking thing about both Churchill and Orwell is that they were very unpopular on their own sides. Churchill was basically expelled by the conservative party in the 1930s because the conservative party, which was the power party in, in power in England, had a policy of appeasement of the Nazis. They wanted to feed Hitler little bits of Europe. Orwell, likewise, uh, was a socialist, but denounced Stalin, denounced Russian communism. And for that, 
become unpopular with many people on the left. But they had principles and they stuck to them. That's one reason the book ends, to my surprise, with Martin Luther King Jr. writing his letter from the Birmingham jail in 1963. He's very much in their path. He says, what are the facts of the matter? The fact is that Birmingham is one of the most segregated, is the most segregated city in America. The fact is the government says the Negro has the right to vote, but the government here won't allow us to vote. There's an American problem. They're failing to live up to their aspirations. So in that, you see, he observes, he applies his principles to the observation, and he devises a course of action. I'm going to point this out, and you can put me in jail because I'm saying the government is not obeying the law. There's a contradiction there that is simply too big to ignore. One of the things that, that's particularly striking, though, as it relates to both Churchill and Orwell and the way in which these ideas played themselves out for both of them is that they were driven, it seems, by the existential threat of the war, of Nazism, that it took an external force in order to bring these things out. Yeah, when people talk about the tumult of today and the polarization of today, I kind of say, you should have seen the 1930s. That was a time of existential threat. It genuinely was. I mean, Churchill in 1940, in my belief, basically single-handedly saved Western civilization. He only had a couple of good years in his life, but if you're going to have a good year, saving the West is a good way to go. Uh, yeah, they, a lot of people, the smart money in the 1930s thought Capitalism was collapsing, democracy was dead, and the choice was fascism or communism. And these guys uh, pointed out, and again and again, no, we disagree, that's not the way to go. And for that, they were shouted down, hooted down, yelled at. Uh, Orwell, for a time, feared that Stalin would send people to assassinate him, kind of like the Russians do these days. There's also a sense, with respect to saving democracy, that there was, there was an element, and this is where it is so prescient relative to today, that trying to keep democracy sustainable is an exhausting process, and that people were worn out by it. It is. Democracy is a little bit like a marriage. You've got to work on it every day. It doesn't take care of itself. Um, and I don't think we've been tending to our democracy well in this country. In fact, when people say, why are the Trump people giving up a democracy? My answer is it's because democracy gave up on the Trump people. They don't feel they're living in a democracy anymore. And I fact, I don't think we are. I think we're living in an oligarchy, a government for the rich, by the rich, and of the rich, in which money counts much more than people's votes. So it's, it's not like I think the people have lost faith in democracy. I think people are recognizing the fact that American democracy uh, is crippled, is not working as it was designed to work, and has been undercut by campaign finance. And that basically both parties are the parties of Wall Street now. And so it's a logical decision for a lot of people to say, well, if it's going to be a big government by the rich or a small government by the rich, I'll go for small government. The other part of it, though, has to do with, beyond the money, this idea of objective reality, of a, of a basic and common set of facts that even Orwell coming from the left and Churchill from the right could agree to and understand. Talk about that with respect to Churchill and Orwell, and really how it's, how we see it different today. Their point of departure for both is the right of the individual to perceive and to believe his or her own perceptions, and not to have somebody else say, your perceptions are wrong, 
this is actually what's going on. Remember, the key battle throughout the book 1984 by Orwell is do, do two and two make four? Orwell says, if you're allowed to believe that two and two make four, that's the beginning of freedom. By the end of um, the book, the hero, named Winston, Winston, by the way, the hero has been so tortured that he is willing to give up his lover to torture. He, he says, take her, not me. And he says, yes, I will say two and two is, is five. And they say, you can't just say it, you have to believe it. He says, I believe two and two is three. I believe two and two is five. It is whatever you want, want me to believe, I will believe it. And that's the fight that these two guys saw and said, you have to prevent. And how was that argument perceived in the day? The, I mean, the idea of fake news in the run-up to the war. Well, in the 1930s, um, Churchill's position was seen as kind of that of a washed-up 60-year-old, 65-year-old uh, politician who time had really passed by, and it was kind of this old whale bellowing away. The smart money in the 1930s said, look, Germany's rearming, we got it. Uh, but France is still reeling from World War I. Italy would fight against us. Spain is having its own war. They're not going to be involved. So basically, it is going to be Germany against us alone. And we are not big and strong enough to fight Germany alone, and America might not come into the war. So the smart money said, don't get into a war because you'll lose it. Instead, pay off Hitler and maybe buy time. Let him take bites of France, of Czechoslovakia, of, of other countries around him. Let him um, do, do what he wants over there so we don't get eaten. And uh, that's, it really was. I mean, that was what the clever people thought. And also, frankly, there was a lot of sympathy in the British aristocracy for fascism. Uh, when the British soccer team was sent to Berlin, in 1938, to play in the Olympic Stadium there, the British soccer team gave the Nazi salute, Heil Hitler, at the request of the British government. And it was a very near thing. Even after Churchill became prime minister in May 1940, a lot of people thought he wouldn't last long, that he'd be an interim figure, and that Lord Halifax would become prime minister. Lord Halifax was the one that the conservative party wanted it was also he was also the favorite of the king and halifax favored a peace treaty if halifax instead of churchill had become prime minister on may 10th 1940 by the summer of 1940 germany and england probably would have had a peace treaty under which the british got to keep their overseas empire and the germans got free reign across europe remember this is a year and a half before america entered into the war so the war would have been over, and Germany, Nazi Germany, would have all of Europe. It was a very close-run thing, and it basically was Churchill's marvelous obstinacy, his, his bullish stubbornness that stopped that from happening. The other thing that Churchill brought to it, and this is another common theme with Churchill and Orwell that you write about, is being able to say that their side and that others that, that agreed with them about other things were wrong about this. Yes, the, the ability to criticize one's own side uh, is so important uh, to not just score points off the opposition. And Churchill was very good at scoring points off the opposition. 
But uh, he also was willing to say, my party is wrong. And a lot of people never forgave him for that. Likewise, Orwell was willing to say, no, I am not with the Communist Party. And a lot of people say anything that helps communism is good. So lying is good if it helps, helps the communist cause. And Orwell uh, emphatically said, no, uh, when you start lying, when you start disguising the truth to advance your political cause, you've lost the basic connection to freedom and liberty. They both say freedom and liberty begin with the individual, the right of the individual to perceive, to think, and to talk to other individuals. That's what you've got to protect. And, and those people to believe what they want to believe, to say what they want to say. In this country, for me, that means we need to be really careful to protect extremist speech, repugnant speech. So while I hate Nazism, I support the right of Nazis to march. Likewise, uh, I think that uh, people who, who don't allow other people to speak on college campuses are hurting the cause of freedom, liberty, and America. I mean, the great thing about this country is we have an operating manual. It's called the Constitution. And in it, there's a Bill of Rights that lays out what it is to be American. Free speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. Um, people who undermine those are acting in an un-American way. I think, I'm a leftist. I think the, uh, the liberal left should recover the phrase un-American and use it when necessary. I think Donald Trump frequently acts in an un-American way. This whole issue of, of a lie in service of, of what someone might perceive as the greater good is, is really the rabbit hole that is at the heart of this issue. It is. and it, I'm glad you, that's a good way of putting it. It really is insidious. Once you start accepting lies and mouthing lies because it helps your side, you've lost the, the battle. And, and talk about the way in which Orwell in particular really understood that. It's interesting, because it, Orwell really does understand it. I think Orwell, for him, he just loved facts, and he loved words. And he deeply resented it when people abused facts, um, when pe and when people abused words. He loved it down to the level of, in his writing, there's one phrase I love where he observes the eye of a, of a toad, and he said the eye of a toad is one of the most beautiful things in creation. It's like this golden diamond. Uh, he, he, he really just noticed nature in that way. And so he observes facts, and he uh, observes words and meanings. And he wrote this great essay, The Politics of the English Language, which I think is the best thing ever written about how politics can distort language, how politics can be used to cover up murder and slaughter uh, and disguise it as things like ethnic cleansing or population redistribution, uh, and how to be wary of those things. And again and again through his career, both in his novels and in his essays, uh, Orwell emphasizes the importance of cl clarity in, in observation and clarity in writing. But, he says at one point, it's very difficult. He said the most difficult thing in the world is to see what's in front of one's eyes. How did they both see the idea of democracy, separate and apart from the idea of liberty, which is really what we've been talking about and is at the core of this, but democracy as an institution, as, as a means to achieve liberty? Talk about that. Uh, I think they both had an odd faith in people that the average working Joe 
not the intellectual, not the Wall Street investment banker, but the average person actually has a pretty good hold on reality, partly because those people are out doing real things. Uh, and so they both had more faith in democracy than a lot of their peers did. There's a scene in the movie um, Darkest Hour that came out a few months ago about Churchill in 1940. The scene is not true. It has him riding in the London Underground, the subway, and being reassured by the people that he is behind them, that they are behind him. Nonetheless, I, I like the scene because it, using poetic license, captured the politics, which is the British people were much more behind Churchill than the British political elite was. The elite did not like him, did not want him as prime minister. In the summer, spring and summer of 1940, increasingly the people supported him. The people rallied around him. And only then did the politics of, of England follow and rally around Churchill. He made this great effort to rally the people against the German invasion, but it was also to rally the people around him. And the, all his great speeches that we, he, we remember are uh, from that, that, that su summer and fall especially. And one of the great things about the speeches that tends to be forgotten is in them he told the British people the truth. Uh, that great speech about we will fight them on the beaches is actually a rather painful description of a fighting retreat from the beaches to the fields to the cities and then to the hills, which is how they would have retreated back up across England in the face of a German invasion. He was telling people hard truths about Dunkirk, uh, in which they lost so many, so much equipment and uh, quite a number of troops, uh, about the prospects of a German invasion. When people were whispering about it, he came out and said it. We may be invaded. Uh, and he, I think... The fact that in those eloquent speeches he was telling the truth tends to be forgotten. It also was the predicate upon which so many of his opponents tried to paint him as a warmonger because of that. He was a warmonger. I mean, that's the, the simple fact of it. Uh, he enjoyed fighting war. He gloried in it. Um, he was good at it. And... By contrast, he was not a good peacetime prime minister. When he returned in the 1950s as a peacetime prime minister, he was a disaster. He was too old. He was simply not interested. He really didn't have the tools for domestic political compromise. But certain people are built for certain things. And he was built as a wartime leader, had all the right instincts, and actually lacked some of the things that could have hurt him. He didn't have much empathy in him. He cried a lot, but he always, it was really for himself he was crying. He was overcome by his own emotions. And he cried in public, which was very un-British and really struck the British public when they saw photographs of him mean, weeping at places where people had been bombed and so on. Uh, but a more empathetic man, I, I don't think, would have been able to carry the burden of war for so long. Uh, he really didn't notice the misery that he caused the people around him. His wife reminded him at one point, wrote him a letter saying, you really need to treat these people better. And I think his attitude was, all of us are part of this war. And if we have to be ground up by it, so be it. To what extent, and when you look at this through, the, through a contemporary lens, does it need to be some kind of threat, not unlike Nazism, like the war, like the, the war that brought out the best in Churchill, as we've been talking about, 
in order to protect the importance of these institutions? I don't know. I mean, I think that's sort of the million-dollar bet we're in the middle of right now. Can America survive a president who doesn't respect the American system, who doesn't understand the Constitution, who is bitterly frustrated by the very checks and balances that James Madison put into the Constitution on purpose to ensure that bad leaders uh, were stymied. I mean, what we're seeing right now, again and again with Donald Trump, is the wisdom of James Madison and the way he wrote that Constitution. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what Churchill thought of Orwell, what he, what he knew, what he thought of him, because it's, he, he certainly didn't think about Orwell as much as Orwell thought about Churchill. Well, yeah, first of all, they never meet in their entire lives, which is kind of surprising. Britain's not a big place. England has a small literary elite. They're in the same city for decades. You would have thought they would have met, but they don't. And I, had they, I'm not sure they would have had that much to say to each other. But we know uh, that they admired each other at a distance. Churchill was really the only conservative uh, that uh, Orwell admired. And the last thing that Orwell ever wrote was an admiring review of Churchill's war memoirs. And, of course, he names the hero of 1984, Winston. And there was only one Winston in the England of the 1940s. Other politicians were referred to by their last names, you know, Macmillan and so on, Chamberlain. Uh, all the British public called Churchill Winston. So naming the hero of 1984, Winston, was important. Churchill... Uh, for most of his life, um, wouldn't have heard of Orwell. Orwell is a minor figure, a failed novelist of the 1930s, a journalist of the 1940s, who then, in 1945, at the end of World War II, publishes Animal Farm, um, which is the first big success of his life. And then, three years later, as he's dying, gets out 1984. We know that Churchill read 1984 and loved it, read it twice, and recommended it to his doctor. One of the other things that that really is kind of an overlay to all this, and also worth thinking about in a contemporary sense, is the importance to both of them of language. How much language mattered? You're right. Uh, Both of them love language. Uh, Both of them love words as words. They like how words go together. They're very different writers. Uh, which really struck me the more I spent three or four years sitting and reading these guys. Orwell famously said that uh, he wanted his prose to be as transparent as a pane of glass. And I think he really did achieve that. It's a very stripped-down style, and I think in the course of it, I think he invented the modern op-ed essay that you see, in which you take a news event, you analyze it, uh, and you make some recommendations. A lot of his columns of the early 1940s kind of fit that structure. And in fact, the tone of the op-ed, uh, sort of an objective analysis uh, of a recent event, very much, I think, comes out of Orwell's writings. Churchill's prose is so different. If Churchill's prose was, a, was glass, it would be the stained glass in the transept of a big cathedral with the... Uh, Sunlight pouring through the red and 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 blue blue parts of the of the, of the stained glass. 
uh, he he writes like a brass band sometimes. He just stomps along. He's very noisy. Uh, he is actually his doctor once said, Winston Churchill will never use one word where two will do. He loved words so much that he said that they were like orchids, they were like flowers. He just liked to show them to people. Uh, so the styles are very different, but both quite compelling. Uh, I think, though, increasingly, Churchill will be see, uh, seen as an anachronistic style, whereas uh, Orwell uh, really feels modern. I once noticed, when I was beginning this book, I was reading a lot of different journalists from the early 20th century, and I was wondering kind of who would last. I went back and looked at um, H.L. Mencken, just found him anachronistic and wrong. Um, I looked a bit at Hemingway, just found him a blowhard. Uh, S.J. Perlman, I still couldn't figure out why he was funny. And then I picked up George Orwell. It was so striking. Orwell sounds and feels and reads like today. You could take a paragraph of Orwell from 1940, drop it in today's newspaper, and nobody would know the difference. And finally, Tom, talk about what it was like for you personally to live with these two guys, not in the context of of writing this book, but really doing it in the context of what we're watching happen every day today. It gave me hope, oddly enough, and I, I, I do have quite a, a lot of pessimistic feelings about America right now. As I said, I believe that we have lost hold of our democracy and increasingly are living in an oligarchy. What gives me hope is the fact that these guys, who are minorities within their own groups, frequently on the outs with their own groups, simply by sticking to the facts, to their observations, were able to achieve enormous influence, and I think, in Winston Churchill's case, to save Western civilization. Uh, And it was simply a matter of them believing in themselves, perceiving facts, and acting on them, which is why I ended the book with Martin Luther King, because I think he redeemed this country with the rest of the civil rights movement by holding the country up to its own aspirations and saying, all we're asking you to do is obey the laws and the values that you people have put at the center of your institutions and the Constitution. Uh, I I think, again, today, we need to try to remember what this country is about. And that's what the book drove me toward. Uh, What is this country about? How is it designed? How does it work? And how do we meet the aspirations of this country? Uh, You know, this country has done terrible things. We We had a genocide of Indians. We had a holocaust of black people with slavery. Nonetheless, this country has always been notable for its aspirations. And I think this book pushed me to think more about how we can try to live up to those. Which, by the way, my next book is about the Constitution and those aspirations. Thomas Ricks, his current book is Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. It's just out in paperback from Penguin. Tom, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you.